Welcome to Southern Fried Fantasy, a podcast for readers and writers, where Southern authors talk about books set in the region they call home. Book lovers beware, your TBR pile is about to get taller than high cotton. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Southern Fried Fantasy. I'm your host, Bob Magoo of Tells by Bob. And this week, the season finale for season one, I could not be more excited to have on. Uh, my, y'all, y'all have heard me talk about him a lot at this point, uh, but here he is, John G. Hartness in the virtual flesh. In every inch of the hairy, <laughs> tattooed virtual flesh. How you doing, bud? Doing good, doing good. Uh, good to uh, quote unquote see you again. Right? Yeah, I haven't. Uh, it's been since Dragon Con was uh, uh, last time I saw you, uh, at least in the flesh. So, uh, but yeah. So I don't like to waste time on here. You know, folks are busy, so we're just going to dive right into the questions. And for those who may not know who you are, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what ties you to the South? Uh, I'm John Hartness. I'm the founder and publisher of Falstaff Books. We're an independent publisher based out of Charlotte, North Carolina, and we've been around since 2016. We've produced a little over 300 titles in that time, and we publish somewhere a little over 60 authors. I also write a couple of things. I write the Quincy Harker Demon Hunter series, the Bubba the Monster Hunter series, and the Black Knight Chronicles. All of those are urban fantasy series ranging from very comedic in Bubba to pretty dark in the Quincy Harker series. My books are all primarily set in the South because I live here. And I've lived in the South my whole life. I grew up in very rural South Carolina, where my family has been since uh, since King George gave them the land. Um, <laughs> that, that's about as uh, about as southern as you can get. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm as bona fide as white people get. Man, I've been here yeah. long as any long as any of us invaders. Yeah, yeah, no, my. Uh, uh, my family's real big on the whole family history thing. And we've got our ancestry trace back to South Carolina as well. The not the first Magoo to come here with the first Magoo of uh, our branch came into uh, South Carolina before promptly moving off to Georgia and then eventually <laughs> Alabama for some reason. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's, so, that's, that's unfathomable for me, but sure. Yeah, no, it's uh, you know, you could go from nice coastal coastal sea breezes to uh uh, swamp Alabama. ass Alabama, <laughs> which, uh, as I'm recording here, it is, uh, it is the, you've been like one of the hottest summers on record and it is absolutely miserable. <laughs> yeah. It's brutal here too. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina now. And, um, yeah, it's been ridiculous. It, yeah. Every time I walk out of my door, it, you know, people talk about, dry heat and the difference between dry heat and humidity and they're not wrong because it's one thing to walk out in like vegas you walk out in vegas it's 116 and you feel like you're getting blasted in the face with a hairdryer yeah but you walk outside where you or i live 
And it feels like someone has just smothered you in a hot, wet towel. Oh, yeah. Like they've yeah. just wrapped it all around you and there's no way. Um, I mean, the summer is why I cut my hair for God's <laughs> sake. Oh yeah. No, I, uh, when people ask me how I'm doing, I just tell them damp. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We, it, it just came out that, uh, Montgomery, which is where the area I live in is the seventh sweatiest city in the nation. And I feel like I account for a good 30% of that statistic. <laughs> I, um, Montgomery is Montgomery is the town in Alabama where I have been the most high. Oh, wow. Nice. Okay. It, I, I mean, I can totally understand that because, uh, to a degree, there's not a lot else to do here. <laughs> friends of mine and I were headed to New Orleans on spring break, my freshman year of college. So this would have been 1991. Mm -hmm. And we stopped in Montgomery because one of the guys I was traveling with was from there. And we smoked incredible amounts of weed and went and played around the statues at the Alabama Shakespeare Festival. Nice. Nice. Yeah, they've actually uh, they actually have expanded and added a whole uh, statue garden out there. Oh, cool. Uh, so, you know, if you ever decide to come back, get high and traipse around again, you've got even more statuary hey. to prance around <laughs> at this point. I'd probably I'm not so much for getting high and traipsing. It's more like I would just walk around, get high, and then sit yeah. and look at the fun statues. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I feel that. So let's, uh, for, for those who haven't had a chance to read you, uh, now I've read some of the uh, Bubba the Monster Hunter uh, mm -hmm. series. And uh, part of, so th that was the first series that I read that made me think that, oh, hey, maybe I could get my books out. Not because of any particular, <laughs> like, if oh, this idiot can no, do it. It, it definitely wasn't can. that. It was, uh, <laughs> it was the first time I'd really read, uh, kind of like southern urban fantasy you know that yeah. really embraced the southernness and that to me is like i as a guy who writes about a meth wizard in south alabama <laughs> i yeah. was like this made me think okay there's clearly a market for this well i feel like there's a market for any books that make an authentic connection and if you as the writer are truly connected to the setting of your work, then that's going to ring true to your audience as well. And I think that can it can add a level of flavor to it. You know, a lot of the places where Bubba goes, I've been. Yeah. The Quincy Harker and Black Knight Chronicles series are both set in Charlotte, where mm. I live. Um, and where I've lived for close to 30 years. Okay. So on the one hand, I don't have to do very much research for geography <laughs> for my books, which is great because I'm pretty lazy. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, um, it allows me that, that connection. When I talk about writing dialogue, a lot of the stuff I'm writing dialogue wise is just recounting conversations that I've had with people that I grew up with. Yeah. And then I add monsters. Right. Yeah. No, anytime I, I wonder like 
am I really nailing the Southern dialogue? I just run through lines that my uncles would say, you know? Yeah. And it's like, Oh, okay. No, that sounds like it would have come out of my uncle's mouth. Okay. Yeah. I think I'm, I think I'm nailing it. Exactly. So that I feel like, I feel like you're right. There's, there's not a ton of, urban fantasy that is grounded in the South. There are a lot of series that take place in Atlanta, but they're still very urban, urban fantasy. Right. They're not country. Right. As we say. Yeah. And I mean, part of the reason I, I, I started this podcast. In fact, the main reason I started this was, you know, I, I just got tired of reading depictions of the South that, Okay, yes, it's set in Atlanta, but the person's never been to Atlanta and it may as well be Chicago, you know. Yeah. Fundamentally, other than some landmarks, they all the research you needed to do was go to, you know, Travelocity and read the top 10, you know, landmarks in the city. And that, you know, boom, boom. That was all the research that they had to do. Yeah, exactly. You don't have somebody writing from the point of view of having spent any time in that community in that geography you know you can't write july in charleston unless you've been in charleston in july yeah because that is its own flavor of sweaty and stinky (laughs) yeah Uh, my my favorite go-to example is you know you can write about bourbon street there's countless you know pictures and videos bourbon street but until you've walked it and smelled what bourbon street smells like after a night of debauchery it's like nothing on this earth (laughs) if you've not walked bourbon street at nine in the morning and watched people with hoses spraying the puke off the sidewalk you don't know bourbon street oh yeah no i I, also highly recommend walking bourbon street at, at about eight or nine in the morning because it's hilarious Oh yeah. No, when I was, uh, I had an uncle that lived in new Orleans. And so my, uh, we would go down for Mardi Gras every year, but being a bunch of kids, we weren't doing the night parades, you know, we were doing the day parades. So we'd be out and about fairly early to go get good spots. And yeah, you'd just be walking down the street and, you know, kicking, kicking the, you know, the homeless people out of the doorway. Hey, come on, get moving. And I'll never forget my little brother. He had to be probably eight years old at the time reached down into the gutter and picked up a plastic trombone that had been thrown by one of the parades the previous night and proceeded to start blowing on it. And anytime I, anytime I think like, what's wrong with that boy, uh, it's that, I think that's where it all went wrong for him. (laughs) Yeah. That trombone bacteria, dude. Yeah. Yeah. No. Oof. (laughs) Oof. So, uh, so yeah. So like I said, I've read, I've read Bubba the monster hunter, uh, I love it because it also scratches that itch for me of comedic horror. Like I'm a big horror fan, but I also have uh, a, a love of jokes and humor and puns and all the, and the zany side of Southern culture. So uh, it, it, it definitely scratches that itch. Um, but I'm less familiar with uh, Quincy Harker and the Black Knight Chronicles. So maybe if you could just uh, a brief kind of rundown of those for, for our listeners. Sure. The Black Knight Chronicles is the first thing I ever wrote in series. I started writing that series back in, uh, I don't remember if it was 2009 or 2010, but I started publishing it in 2010 and we're eight books deep 
there will be a ninth and final book in the series. Pro- realistically, it won't come out until next year because, well, I haven't written it yet, and it's July. So (laughs) realistically, we're not going to see that until 23, Mm -hmm. but that'll finish out the series. It's the story. It's a buddy cop, light urban fantasy style, very similar to early Dresden or Mm -hmm. the early Kevin Hearn books. Um, It's a pair of guys who are comic book nerds and they get turned into vampires right after graduating college. And that kind of freezes them developmentally. So Mm. (laughs) they spend 20 years being 22. Yeah. (laughs) And then things start changing around them and they begin to mature. And this series tracks that maturation as characters. And also it tracks them interacting with other supernatural beings, with other vampires and with the world so it's a closed world series the normal humans don't know that there are magical beings so they have to figure out how to keep their cover yeah and i i tend to liken it to buffy in that it's that lightish urban fantasy but it's not straight on comedy yeah Yeah, baba is straight up comedy it's dick (laughs) jokes and explosions yeah which I mean, really, what more do you really need out of out of literature? I feel like you need very little, but <laughs> you know, tequila usually. <laughs> yeah. And then That's... the Quincy Harker Demon Hunter series, when when I saw the first advertisement for Constantine on NBC, mm. I thought that's going to be awful because you can't. By the way, is this a PG-13 podcast? Oh, no, you're good. Go, go Okay, nice. because you can't say fuck on NBC. Right. And I don't feel like you can write John Constantine without F-bombs. Yeah. I grew up reading Hellblazer in the 90s when Garth Ennis, who created The Boys, mm-hmm. was writing Hellblazer. Yeah. So my John Constantine is a potty mouth motherfucker. Yeah. So I decided that I would show them what an American-based John Constantine should look like. And that was the inspiration for the Quincy Harker series. Hmm. It's this foul-mouthed, irascible, kind of long-lived magic user who lives in Charlotte now and hunts down demons and sends them back to hell. Yeah. The character of Quincy Harker I didn't create Bram Stoker created Quincy Harker. He is, he is canonically the son of Jonathan Harker and Mina Murray from the novel Dracula. Oh, okay. And his full name. And I'm almost certainly going to get this out of order. His full name, I believe is Jonathan Abraham Quincy Holmwood Harker. Because he's named after all of the men that were Mm. part of the hunting party that went after Dracula. Yeah. Yeah. And thus Quincy Harker was born. And I'm able to use that character one, because it's been so long that Dracula is in public domain regardless, but also Stoker never registered the copyright correctly in the United States 
which is how everybody's always been able to use Dracula yeah. forever. Well, and you know, right. same thing happened with Lovecraft. You know, that's why every yeah. every uh, board game you see has a uh, a Cthulhu version. It's because yeah. the, it was so nebulous as to who had the rights um, that they never that really nobody can that defend the IP. Yeah. So I, I mean, I'm not mad at it. <laughs> Me neither. Yeah. So. But- so that's Quincy Harker. And it's yeah. when I'm, when I'm hand selling at conventions, I generally tell people that Harker is like if supernatural run HBO nice. twice, the F bombs, half the crying. Yeah. I like it. And that that's interesting about the Constantine kind of connection uh, because uh, in, a, in a roundabout way, Constantine was a real influence on uh, my main character, Howard Marsh. Uh, uh, there was a there's another series that now that we're now that we're here and we're talking I, I'm totally blanking but there, there's another series that kind of heavily draws on that Constantine kind of vibe of drug using uh, crime Sandman fighter Slim. oh no I, I, someone just recently turned me on to Sandman Slim I'm checking that out but it wasn't that it was uh, but it was a comic it was also a comic okay uh, and so uh, I just I love that so much, and uh, but it was set in L.A. and I was like, oh, man, I'd love to see just a druggy, supernatural battling guy in the South, and so oh, yeah, and so that that was kind of where part of the part of the inspiration of mine came. Uh, and my favorite thing about Constantine was uh, you may have heard this story, but the creator says that on two separate occasions he met he actually met his creation that he uh, one time he was on a subway. And uh, he saw John Constantine walk by in the crowd, and like he just knew instantly that it was him. And then Believe later on, that he said those words because Alan Moore is bat shit crazy. <laughs> he is. He that is. dude is a genius. Yeah, and nuts. Yeah, he he said that later on he encountered Constantine again, and that Constantine said uh, the thing about magic is it just that any any bloke can do it and then just like walked off so <laughs> yeah because like doesn't doesn't more claim to be a wizard now oh god i don't uh th- you can't keep up with the pace of his in- insane ramblings i just fo- real he's one of those i focus on the the, the product not the person <laughs> i mean i don't read comics anymore because i can't keep up with them and they're real expensive god, um, they? so i haven't read any new Okay, I'm lying a little. I did a Comic Con a couple of weeks ago, so I bought some indie stuff from people who had tables at the con. But as far as big mainstream comics, I haven't read any in years. Yeah, no, that's uh, I got turned off of uh, superhero stuff uh, in my in my teens, and you know I, I still try to keep up with some of like the horror comics and things like that. But for the most part, I just I wait till like an omnibus comes out. And yeah. goes on sale, and then I pick that up. <laughs> Same. I have a really nice hardbound copy of Monstrous by Marjorie Lou. I love Monstrous. Yeah. I picked it up. It's got like, I don't know, it's got like the first six or 12 issues yeah. in this nice hardbound gilt cover. I got it for like 50 bucks at a con. Yeah. Was- uh, last Prime Day had. Uh, had the first like hardback leather bound uh, uh, sleep uh, um, crap. Uh, Neil Gaiman. Uh, Sandman. Uh, 
Sandman, yes, uh, Sandman, Sandman omnibus, and I I picked that up, and uh, I was really hoping that the second omnibus was going to pop up on this Prime Day, but it it did not. <laughs> not so, so much, huh? Yeah. So, all right. Since we've got a little off track, let's let's wind it back. Can't imagine, so, <laughs> right? So, all right. So, I like to ask, what is uh, what are some elements of Southern culture that you uh, you felt like it was important to get across in your work? And kind of how did you go about doing that? You know, I just try to present being Southern. Uh, being Southern, I'm, I typically hate the way that Southerners are represented in media mm-hmm. because we're not all barefoot, toothless hillbillies. Right. Um, I am admittedly currently not wearing shoes, but I'm in my house. So (laughs) it's loud. (laughs) Right. So all I'm really shooting for is presenting Southern characters as the well-rounded, varied, multi-layered people that we are just like everybody else. Are there horrible people in the South? Yes. Are there horrible people in the Pacific Northwest? Yep. Yep. Are there horrible people in Guam? I mean, I don't know. I've never been to Guam, but almost certainly because there's a shitload of horrible people in the world. Yeah. People are going to people. Right. So the, the presentation of Southerners as stupid bothers me quite a bit the presentation of Southerners as all being racist trash bothers me. Mm-hmm. Um, we have our fair share. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I'm related to some of them, mm-hmm. but we don't have any more stupid people or racist trash than anywhere else. Yeah. Our, our stupid racist people are just a little louder about it. Usually. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel I feel like that's the the <laughs> the, the core difference is they feel a little safer saying it uh, yeah. sometimes down here, but doesn't mean that. Uh, I mean, I, I've uh, I, I saw so the Southern Poverty Law Center is based here in Montgomery, and I saw an interesting statistic that they put out some years back, and it could be wildly different now, but that there were actually far more uh, hate groups in the Midwest than there were in the South. Uh, and I don't know if that's just because, you know, it's too hot to organize the hate down here <laughs> or what, but it, you know, it was definitely an interesting statistic to me that, you know, kind of, you know, if you were to ask someone, you know, are there more hate groups in Alabama or Iowa, they'd be surprised to find out that it's Iowa, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's going to be <laughs> hell. It'll be significantly more, um, in like Montana yeah. or those per capita. Yeah. Well, it, 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 I feel like also to a degree, it's, you know, a lot of racism comes from fear and the, you know, the core fear is like fear of the unknown. And, Absolutely. you know, you know, in Alaska, there's not a huge African-American population, you know? Yeah. So, uh, it, to me, it would make sense that there would be more hate groups in a place like Iowa, where there are ironically fewer black people, because down here, we, I mean, 
the city I live in is uh, majority African-American, you know, and I, you know, you can't be around people all the time and not realize that, hey, they're human beings too, you know? Right. And that's, that's kind of the, the key is the more we can be around other people and the more we can understand that everybody, look, everybody just wants three hots and a cot, you know, everybody wants the same basic things. And if you can just go about getting them without being a dick to everybody, then you'll be okay. Yeah. And I, I also tend, I try to play up the sense of family because that's very important, not just in the South overall, but particularly in my life. Um, I'm very close to my family and we have a very close knit family. And I believe that family is very important in the South especially those of us who grew up in rural areas because we didn't have anything else. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can definitely, having grown up in, uh, you know, backwoods, Alabama in an area that was so laden with my family that uh, I grew up, uh, you know, basically adjacent to Magoo road. <laughs> yeah. You know, cause that there's just so many Magoos on it. And then, you know, my stepdad, uh, lived on, who was a Rabin lived on Rabin road, you know? <laughs> so, uh, there were, you know, families always been, it, it, it's just so close and so prevalent. And when you're in the, you know, when you're in the country that doesn't have necessarily the support networks, like, you know, you know, living, you know, 30 minutes from the nearest town, you know, you can't really necessarily call the cops, you know, it's a volunteer fire department, you know, yeah. that may or may not be trained, may or may not be funded. So you do definitely rely on families so much more in those in, in that area. Oh, yeah. I mean, where I grew up was, um, yeah, we were definitely we were 20 minutes at, it, at, at the best of times. We were 20 minutes to the nearest town that had a police station and an hour to the nearest place that had something like a detective. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that, that's, that's roughly equivalent to what, what I was dealing, <laughs> dealing yeah. with. It was we, like 50 had... yards from the volunteer fire department because, well, it was next door. Yeah. <laughs> well, my, my cousin was the, uh, uh, the fire chief <laughs> for the fire department. So, um, and uh, you know, it didn't get a lot of use, uh, but damn, they did a uh, bold peanut fundraisers every year that were just absolutely killer so yeah we did square dances nice <laughs> lots nice. of square dances not a, not a lot of dancing magoos is in my experience so i felt like we kind of played more to our strengths which is eating uh eating peanuts <laughs> now you're making me hungry right right so uh I like to ask where you get your ideas from, and that's super cliche, like the most cliche author <laughs> question of them all. Uh, but what I what I like to know is how to what degree do you draw on your own life? You know, some authors keep a clear division. You know, my my fiction is very separate from my personal life. Um, but you've already mentioned that you that you you know you draw on real life experiences for your stories, and I'm just kind of curious to, to. Well, rather than rather than the banal cliched answer i'll give you i'll tell you a story yeah i'll be i'll be southern 
Because <laughs> what was it Robert Penn, Penn Warren said? Southern men like to drink whiskey, tell stories, and fornicate. Not necessarily yeah. in that order. <laughs> Accurate. So my mom passed away in, I believe, 2014. And after a long illness, decade dealing with dementia, um, it was terrible. But she's, she's buried in the cemetery of the church where I grew up, where she was a deacon, chairman of the board of deacons, where my father was an elder in the church. Mm-hmm. The entire front row of the cemetery, most of them share my name, and the ones that don't share my name are still kin. Yeah. <laughs> so we've been burying people there since the, since the 18th century. I was walking through the cemetery one day, as one does, talking to dead relatives and people I grew up with, as one does, and an image came to me and I, a line came to me of walking through the cemetery with the ghosts of my ancestors swirling around my feet. And that came to me as I'm walking across the graveyard from visiting my brother-in-law to visiting my uncle to seeing my mom. And that was where my book, Amazing Grace, started. Mm. It started with that line in that moment. And then I ended up writing a book that's the most personal book I've ever written probably the most Southern book I've ever written, even more Southern than Bubba. And it's about a middle-aged woman who talks to dead people. Now that's not a big deal, right? You're Southern. You understand all of us talk to dead people all the time. Yeah. Well, with Lila Grace, they talk back Hmm. and she can hear them. So I basically wrote a Southern Jessica Fletcher meets ghost whisperer, paranormal cozy mystery off of a walk. I took through the cemetery. Yeah. And that book came from there. Yeah. So I mine the news and my real life for things all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, the next Bubba the Monster Hunter book I'm working on, it's it's a satanic panic book <laughs> because we're in a time where, okay, it's been almost 40 years since that really god-awful TV movie with Tom Hanks yeah. playing around in the sewers. Um, and it's been a long time since we had a good old-fashioned satanic panic And yet we're kind of doing a lot of the same things we were doing in the early eighties that led us to that place where all of a sudden, if you played dungeons and dragons, you were a devil worshiper. Yeah. Which definitely led to me getting my ass kicked a few times in middle school. (laughs) No, I I can definitely see where, you know, if, if a satanic panic around role-playing games were to, to break out now, I would not be terribly surprised by that. You know, it, no. you know, it's, uh, 
with with all the 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 turmoil on the on the right about anything you know trans or you know in the queer community if they were aware of how many just really great uh role-playing games are out there that are centered on those themes um, oh, yeah that there would be there would be books being burned left and right <laughs> yeah if they got a hold of thirsty sword lesbians from evil hat productions they'd go yeah. nuts yeah it's a great, oh, yeah great game by the way i think i think it won a major award for game writing last well, year e- too evil hat puts out good stuff so wouldn't yeah. be wouldn't be surprising so uh, i wanted to ask i know that you are a uh, a big wrestling fan i am and uh i w- i was pretty into it when i was younger but i come the generation I'm in, it was WCW, the Monday Night Wars. You know, okay. that was kind of when I came in. Um, but and I, I don't know the history of wrestling as well as I might. But my general impression is most of the great wrestlers were or the wrestling organizations were Southern for the most part. There um, were basically when you came in, it was basically down to two companies. Right. It was WWE, which is based out of Connecticut. And WCW, which was based in Atlanta. It was owned by Turner at that Mm -hmm. point. And WCW used to be Georgia Championship Wrestling and Jim Crockett Promotions, which was Mid-Atlantic Wrestling. And then Crockett bought Georgia Championship Wrestling. And then WWE bought out most of the territories around the country. And a few of them sold to Crockett and then Crockett sold to Turner and it became WCW. There have been so many good wrestlers out of the South. There are a ton from other places too. You can't discount folks like Bruno Sammartino as one of the best ever. Um, Ivan Putsky, Ivan Koloff, but folks like Dusty Rhodes Right. Um, that son of a plumber. Maybe. <laughs> you know, you've got folks like Bullet Barb Armstrong from Georgia. You've got folks like Paul White, the big show. Yeah. Well, he's from South Carolina. Um, he My- had he had that thing that you could not that you can't teach an athlete. That thing called being seven foot tall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, talking, so, about, yeah. Uh, talking about Bullet Bob, that was my uh, that was my nickname at work. When I worked in a warehouse, they called me Bullet Bob. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, some, so, whoever coined that was almost certainly a wrestling fan. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, no, definitely. Um, so I was just curious. Uh, have you have you blended uh, your love of wrestling into any of your novels to date? Not much. There have been a few, uh, there are a few references here and there. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, I will have one of my characters try and usually fail to pull off a wrestling (laughs) move. Yeah. Because most of the things that look really devastating in pro wrestling, you can't do on your own. The person you're performing the move on is helping you mm-hmm. they're lifting they're jumping a little they're yeah. holding on to your arm while you're pulling them over or they're shifting their body weight you can't really do that 
as easily to a resisting <laughs> yeah. opponent. The, the, the zombie's not going to help you do that. No, you're better off just taking a machete, hacking his arm off and beating him to death with it. <laughs> I mean, I suppose you could be boring and just hit him in the head with the machete, but yeah, come on, but, that's I mean, lame. Yeah, Everybody not, does that. Not too dramatic. <laughs> right. Now, one thing that it that being a lifelong pro wrestling fan has done is I write really good fight scenes for somebody who doesn't know shit about fighting <laughs> because yeah. I don't, I'm not a fighter. I'm a lover, baby. Uh, <laughs> I haven't thrown a punch at a human being since I was in high school, Yeah, but I've watched pro wrestling for almost 50 years now. And I've learned how to tell a story through combat. And that's what and they're doing. You know? The ebb and flow of a pro wrestling match is exactly like the ebb and flow of a good fight scene mm. in a story because that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that makes perfect sense. I had never really considered that, but it, it, it makes perfect sense. I actually hadn't either until I was on a panel at Dragon Con a few years ago. And it was it was one of those big, massive panels there were like 12 damn people on this thing <laughs> and it was about writing fight scenes and you had people who were combat veterans police officers martial artists martial arts instructors and then you had me and mike resnick and they started with mike and he's like i don't know anything about how to fight i don't have any experience in it i make it up and then you go through like eight or nine people who are like, well, I served in, I served multiple tours of, in Iraq and Afghanistan. I served this many years and was trained in this type of unarmed combat. I've been a police officer for decades. I've been a martial arts instructor for 30 years. Then they get to me and I'm like, yeah, I watch a lot of wrestling and Kung Fu <laughs> movies. Love it. but you know if it if if you think about it honestly yes you know if if you're shooting for realism yeah you know you can't beat having served tours of duty in in an area like the 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 book that you're writing but you know most of us aren't necessarily if we were going for realism we wouldn't necessarily be writing urban fantasy (laughs) right i mean i'm writing i write vampire books for god's sake uh realism goes out the window and nobody wants to read me talk about how much it actually hurts to get punched in the face. They want me to write wish fulfillment, fantasy, masculine fantasies about kicking ass and taking names. They yeah. want me to write a Toby Keith song. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and I'm all right with that. I'm pretty good at it. I think, yeah. um, but that doesn't mean that I can't use my work to show some of the real effects mm. that violence has on people because it does have a cost. Oh, definitely. And that's something I've had to learn and adapt in my writing because I started off and it was just toxic masculine wish fulfillment, you know, Mary sue the shit out of myself into this awesome person with superpowers. Yeah. But after a couple of books, your, your lead character has to get his ass kicked a few times. Yeah. Or it's boring. Uh, it's like, 
uh, for me, I don't, uh, I personally don't really care much for most mainstream superhero stuff because, um, you know, no, no one dies. You know, if anyone ever dies, you know, three, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And so to me, it, it kind of cheapens the genre overall. And so I don't really care for it. So when I was younger, it was great. I loved reading about Batman beating all these people up Thor, Conan, you know, all those, but as I've gotten older, you know, that stuff's still cool, but that's not what, you know, it's, it's having those real repercussions makes it more relatable to me because man i would love it if life was was great and no one died and everything went perfect uh but that's not life you know yeah i'd love to be able to stand on to stand on one foot and kick somebody in the face three or four <laughs> times with my other foot without ever without ever falling over and giving myself a concussion but yeah uh that ain't that ain't gonna happen one i don't think i can get my foot that high if I'm kicking somebody in the face, I'm going to have to stand on one foot on a ladder. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I feel that. <laughs> yeah. It's been a long time since I got my foot as high as anybody's head. Yeah. So uh, I'll, I always like to ask, are, is there anything from like Southern folklore that you've worked into your novels? Anything uh, from the supernatural, either cryptids yes. or stuff like that. Perfect. My newest release, which dropped yesterday, it is the first novella in Bubba the Monster Hunter season six, mm-hmm. and it's called Swing Low, and it is Bubba hunting the lizard man of South Carolina. Yes, yes, I love it. I've been getting it. requests for Bubba chase hunting the lizard man for ten years. And I, I mean, finally it's, it's a natural it. fit. <laughs> yeah. And next up, um, next up is Bubba checking out the devil's tramping ground. Okay. Yeah. Actually, so actually yeah. this whole season of Bubba is going to be just that it's going to be old school, Southern folklore and yeah. Bubba either exploring what's fake about it or what's real about it. Yeah. And uh, I believe this is a a Falstaff author as well. Mason Dixon. Yeah, that's part of the bubble verse. Yeah. Eric Eric Asher writes Mm -hmm. the Mason Dixon Monster Hunter series. And that's that's based out of Missouri. Yeah. Um, I've been uh, I picked up one of those at uh, at DragonCon. I've been reading it uh, going after the uh, the Ozark Howler. Yeah. Uh, So. Well, I, I'm a I'm a huge fan of cryptids, anything cryptid. So then you'd uh, probably also like Spells, Salt, and Steel by Gail and Larry Martin. Yeah. That's another Bubbaverse title with Mark Wojcik is the protagonist there. And he is a monster hunter in rural Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And he hunts down. And I sometimes I swear. It's like Eric and Gail and Larry are all in this group chat trying to come up with the weirdest damn monster so that I'll say, oh, come on. Yeah. And then they send me a link to some site where it's real folklore. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There's some weird ones out there. Uh, I I did an interview on here with, uh, I believe it was uh, D.L. Wainwright, who was talking about the bunny man. Yeah. Yeah, and that was that was a totally new one on me. Uh, and 
was like, oh, cool. Well, now I have something to go research when I'm done with this interview. <laughs> exactly. So we we we've got some real some real gems in the in the deep south for uh, bizarre cryptids. So, well, and you know, then there's that then there's second cousin Harold. He ain't quite a cryptid, <laughs> but he really needs to shave his back. Yeah, <laughs> we might uh, be a little Sasquatch in that boy. Oh yeah we <laughs> we had a we had a family uh, without revealing too many. We had a family in the in the neighborhood and. Um, they were in, in a community of backwoods folks. They were viewed as clearly the most backwoods, and uh, that so no it was one, a high bar, and they yeah. still cleared it. Ooh, and so you know, it's one of those families where no one has a real name. Everyone is referred to by a by a nickname from like Po Man and you know Pretty Boy and all that. And um, yeah, in the you know in the in the right light, you know. It, you would have thought that they were uh, they were a skunk ape. <laughs> yeah, I don't so, know if I don't know if my microphone is picking up the purring, but my new one of my new kittens, Gandalf, has yeah. just come to visit and come to say hello. Hey, bud. Yeah, I've been seeing them in the newsletter. Yeah, um, I um the week after Easter, I was out on the patio reading and I saw something moving behind the bushes, and I was like what the hell's that and this little white kitten climbs out and had just opened they had just opened their eyes Mm -hmm. and it was a litter of four and now three of them still live with me yeah love it i i uh grew up a dog person but as i forgive you well as as i've gotten older uh i no longer have dogs and i have two uh plump cats that well, I say I have them. Really, they have me. Right. Well, that's exactly what happened here. We had planned on keeping two of these three. One I gave to a buddy of mine um, who had other who had other cats and wanted to add a third to his family. Well, we had planned on keeping two, and one was going to go to my sister, but he <laughs> decided that I was his person. Yeah. So I couldn't let him leave. Yeah. And now we have three. Yeah. We're 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 tentatively looking at adding a third to to our our posse. Um we'll we'll see. We uh uh we adopted two middle-aged cats. So okay. and they're kind of they're older and a little more set in their ways. And so we're a little leery of adding a kitten. Um, but, uh, we may keep our eyes peeled for, you know, another shelter cat that's maybe a little older. Yeah. Um, so, well, that's, right. that was going to be our plan. We were going to go pick up a bonded mm-hmm. pair of yeah. kittens from a shelter, but then, uh, one of the neighborhood strays decided our patio was a nice, safe spot to have babies. Yeah. So now I have <laughs> babies. Yeah. Well, so I like to gear the the first half of the podcast more for the readers and the back half I gear more for the writers that are listening out there. So uh, first question I always like to ask, what is kind of your process? Are you more of a discovery writer, more of a more of a plotter? How how does uh, how does it work? It depends. Um, The past couple of weeks, I've been working on a short story for an anthology I was invited to be in. And for short stories, I don't outline. I come up with 
a rough, okay, this is what's got to happen and probably need two fight scenes. And then I'm, and then I write it with a novel. I tend to at least outline the first chunk. Sometimes like today, actually I'm a, I'm a third of the way into outlining this next bubble book, but I felt like getting started. So don't stand on the keyboard, Gandalf. <laughs> um, so I wrote the first half of chapter one today. Yeah. I only, I only know what's going on in about the first third of the book, but I don't really need to figure that out until I get done with chapter three or four. So mm-hmm. If I feel like finishing the outline tomorrow, I'll finish the outline. If I feel like putting more words on the page, I'll put more words on the page. I don't, I used to lock myself in to a very specific way of making a book. But at this point, I'm, push, I'm pushing 40 novels. Yeah. So I, I kind of can, I kind of can write a book. Yeah. <laughs> so. I don't well, have to do it all one way or another yeah. for beginning writers. I highly recommend outlining simply because it makes it easier to finish when you have a roadmap. Yeah. It's easier to get to the end of a trip when you know where you're going, mm-hmm. but that does have run the risk of killing the discovery pieces. It's why my outlines are always very sparse. Typically, what I do when I start to write a book is I know how long it needs to be. Mm-hmm. The bubble books are novellas, so I shoot for about 30,000 words. Mm-hmm. Well, my natural chapter length is about 2,000 words. So I work in Scrivener. I go in and I add 15 chapters and an epilogue. And then I go through and I write one sentence per chapter about what I think is going to happen. And then I write it. Yeah. That's, uh, that's almost identical to my method, except that I, I don't have Scrivener. So I just use an Excel spreadsheet. Each row gets one, maybe two sentences. Right. Uh, So, but something you said about how, you know, when you, you used to be more locked in and now you're a little more loose with it. And I think that's something, uh, I can't remember who said it. It may have been Stephen King, but talked about like, you know, there's all these rules and for writing that you need to learn. But once you, once you, once you know them, break them, break them. Exactly. So, you know, for new writers, you know, it may be very helpful for you to have a real firm structure, you know, uh, if that's what helps you get that book out, you know, fantastic. Right. But don't, don't lock yourself into the detriment of, you know, of actually getting that book done. If you, if, if, if the method you've chosen is gummed up the works, drop the method. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And don't be afraid to change midstream where I find an outline to be very helpful is when I get off, when I lose it, when I get off of it, mm-hmm. because then I can go back and I can see where I went sideways and I can course correct. Yeah. And I can usually do that one or two chapters into the mess as opposed to doing it 50,000 words into the mess. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So if, if someone was listening now, they're, you know, they've, they're 
trying to get that first book done, maybe they're struggling. What is, what is some advice you'd like to give them? Just write it, just write it for God's sake. Don't read it. Don't, don't do not worry about what happens after it's finished. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I, I saw a, uh, a person uh, I'm in the fans of urban fantasy uh, group on Facebook. And I think uh, it's, I it's a really am too. It's a great group. Uh, it's one of the few large groups that actually allows uh, uh, self promo, as long as you're not excessive with it, you know? And so uh, I promote this podcast in there and promote my stuff, sure. and, you know, I've had good results with it. Um, but there was, there was a person in there today who was, you could tell that, like you could feel the angst coming through the message where they were just having a, a real come apart um, because they, they want to write this book, but you know, they know they're just too nervous to ever get it published. So why are they wasting all this time? You know, and, and it's just one of those, you just got to tell them, it's like, don't, don't worry. You're writing the book. Cause you want to write the book, write yeah. the book. Don't worry about what, you know, <laughs> you know, especially with your first book. When there's when there are no expectations on you, you're as free you're freer than you're ever going to be again. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a book right now that's going out. I'm querying agents with this book. This book is like nothing I've ever written before. Mm-hmm. There are no supernatural elements. It's two female protagonists. It's uh, it's kind of an updated, more redneck Thelma and Louise story. There you go nothing like anything I've ever written. And that's going to be hard. That that's a book that would be easier for a new novelist to sell. I have 40 books out. (laughs) They're all fantasy, urban fantasy and horror. Yeah. Uh, It's a little tougher for me to get, for me to get a mainstream publisher to care about my work because I don't have a track record doing that and they don't want audiences to get confused. Yeah. But yeah, you gotta, I see that all the time and I see it. People come up to my table at conventions because we have, we have a big presence at most Southern conventions and it's the press that is the presence. Um, and I have people who come up all the time and they, they're talking about submissions and they're talking about what format and then I'm like, well, the book's done, right? Oh, well, no. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a third of the way finished. And it's gotten to where that's the first thing I ask is, is it finished? Yeah. And if it's, and if no, then inevitably the next thing is someone wanting to tell me, well, it's gonna be this. Yeah. So I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. don't give a shit what it's going to be mm-hmm. because it's not yet. Yeah. And there's so, every chance you know, in the world that it's not going to end up what you think it is. The vast and the it's there's every chance in the world it's not going to end up being a book. Yeah. Oh yeah. Most people who start writing a book don't finish writing a book. Yeah. Um and then most people who write a book don't write a readable book. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people 
who develop into fantastic writers can't write a readable book the first time they write a book. Yeah. AJ Hartley is a good friend of mine. Um, just saw him for dinner last night. Um, I publish, I've published four of his books and we're about to sign a contract for a fifth. He's one of the best writers I know. Um, love his work. He wrote 12 novels before one got published. Yeah. 12 <laughs> full novels. Yeah. Before one got published. Mm-hmm. So, of course, his first book was a New York Times bestseller. So he was an overnight success, right? <laughs> 12 <laughs> books later. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, one of my favorite stories is Michael J. Sullivan, the Ryera books. Yeah, I know, I know Michael. Yeah. Uh, he wrote 10 books before uh, going with a small press, and then the small press promptly folded. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so he ended up self publishing and sold 90,000 copies. And then Orbit came in and said, Hey, we'll put those wrote out. Wrote <laughs> Big old check. Yeah. <laughs> and then he walked away. He did. From Orbit and is still doing quite well for himself. I love those books. Those are exactly the type of high fantasy that I like to read. Mm-hmm. And I remember Michael from when I was starting out because he started, he got started self-publishing, I guess, probably about a year before I did. So when I came along, the big names in self-publishing science fiction and fantasy were Michael J. Sullivan, David Dalglish, and Amanda Hawking, mm-hmm. all of whom signed big contracts with Orbit. Yeah. Well, and I remember he's somewhat active on the, uh, the fantasy subreddit. And I remember, you know, it was one of those, Hey, how much do authors really make posts? And he came on there and he said, uh, last year, uh, my books combined sold like $1.3 million and I got a check for (laughs) $34,000. He, he had apparently totally, uh, uh, muffed his uh, audiobook rights. Uh, oh. That was that was his horror story. Was uh, most of that or a huge portion of that money came from audiobook sales at that point, and he had basically given those rights away. Uh, so well, it, was a, it was a big reason why he uh, ended up splitting from Orbit. Let's also let's also step back and understand that michael signed a seven figure advance yes oh yes so there ain't ever gonna be a tear shed for that some bitch no 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 no, no. He, and i do i do like michael I, he's a great as, dude but as as my parents would say uh he, he does okay yeah exactly <laughs> but yeah i mean he's he's gone the self gone back to the self-publishing route uh he kickstarts you know collector's yeah. editions of his books and things like that and he's doing doing I fantastic have, i have one of them yeah i also i actually think that i'm glad honestly that the majority of new york published writers haven't clued in that after five or six books they should probably walk away from new york yeah because the money's I want to sell anywhere from one to three books to a major New York house to raise my visibility for the work that I publish through Falstaff and through Bellbridge because I get a higher chunk of the royalties off of that. And with an expansive backlist, 
you know from by being a book purchaser. You don't walk into a bookstore and say, I want, I want Conflict Born, published by Falstaff Books. No, you walk in and you say, I want the new Stephen King book. Yeah. So once your visibility is elevated, then leave and <laughs> make your money. Yeah. I, I wonder after the uh after the Brandon Sanderson Kickstarter, if more authors might become white. Like obviously that was no. somewhat anomalous. Uh, because he had totally anomalous. Yeah, he'd been laying the groundwork for that for his entire career, <laughs> more or less. Yeah, he had been working. He had been working on that with focused intent for ten years. Yeah, because when so, I met Brandon in 2011, he was already poking around at what at what is self publishing. How do I do this? How do I learn this? And he and was, he ran he, a he ran a seven figure Kickstarter before yeah. this one. Yeah. And he also, he winding it back. He was one of those authors. He wrote a large number of books before Elantris ever got published, you know? And if you look at Elantris and compare it to a lot of his other work, you know, it it's, I would argue it's not on the same caliber, you know, and he's gotten so much, so much better with every book to me. Uh, And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely a process. (laughs) Yeah. I haven't read a ton of Brandon's work. Um, I don't read a ton of epic fantasy. Yeah. I enjoy the stuff I've read and I like him. He's always been a good dude. Um, I really liked Mistborn. Yeah. And I really, my favorite thing I've read of his was Legion. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't read Legion. My, my favorite's Warbreaker. Uh, okay. Which, which standalone. And the older I get and the more books I have to read, the more I have come to appreciate standalones. <laughs> yeah. The more. Get in and get out. <laughs> I'm with you, man. I get it. With For me, it's the more I talk to readers and I start saying, well, this is book eight. Yeah. And I see their eyes glaze over. I'm like, I might need to start thinking in trilogies. Yeah. You know, for some people, you know, that that's what they want. They want that. If it's, you know, if it's not 10 bucks long, they're not interested. You know, they've got kind of limited. They want to tear through them. Um, But then there, it it seems to me growing increasingly more common that there are just people out there that they want trilogies or less, you know? Yeah. There's a market for, there's a market for it either way. Yeah. And likely what I'm going to do, because the Black Knight Chronicles does only have one book left in it, probably what I'm going to do is Harker and Bubba will continue as they are, as open-ended series. But whatever I work on after I finish Black Knight 9, that will probably be um, either a standalone i've got a couple of standalones that i'm noodling with and then Mm -hmm. i've got some some trilogy ideas i have an epic fantasy trilogy i'd like to write and then i have a standalone high fantasy that i want to write along with a couple of thrillers yeah also uh i picked up and just really really enjoyed uh have space cat will travel and other tales yeah yeah so uh i picked it up based on the cover (laughs) 
that <laughs> book does not make me any money on ebook, but my God, it flies off the shelf at conventions. Yeah, I because there's imagine. a cat in a space suit on the cover. My God, what more do you want out of life? You know, but once I got into it, I realized this is one. I just love it's a. Uh, how much it's just a cross section of your career, you know, it really it's got books is. from different, you know, different series. It's got your poetry. It's got, you know, and some of that poetry is real Southern. I mean, real, oh, real yeah. Southern, uh, which I love. And so, but it's definitely something like, I know me as my career has gone, you know, you, you just wind up with a bunch of oddities, you know, you get that standalone no idea. Let me, let me write that real quick. And then, you know, what do you do with it? Yeah, I did a thing for a year where I wrote a short story every month for my Patreon patrons. Mm-hmm. Um, one, that was terrible. Yeah. Um, I I don't do I don't do very well under that kind of pressure. Oh, I um, as as a guy who runs a Patreon that's tried to do that and buckled under the pressure, yes. No, it's yeah. it's not great. <laughs> but some of the stories in Space Cat came out of that. Um, some of them were just literary fiction stuff that I wrote to see if I could. Yeah. Um, the Christmas Lights is, I think, my favorite story in that. And that was inspired by um, the Clint Eastwood movie, El Camino. Yeah. So, yeah. No, it's yeah, just so, I mean, as, as I read it, this was very much as like, I, this is a book that one day I, I will be putting out, you know, my version of it. Cause you know, I've written short stories to submit to anthologies that never got accepted or, you know, mm-hmm. so sitting there, you know, it's from, it's from the early, early days of the Bob career. So yes, sure. it's not, it's not fit to see press right now, but you know, now that I'm older and hopefully a little wiser, you know, go in there and actually, you know, revise it and, Clean you know, yeah. Give some of these things a, a second life and, you know, all the all the odds and ends that you build up in your writing career to to yeah. get to put them in a book like this, uh, yeah, I just really I don't know, I really appreciated that. So well, thanks. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, it's 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 a weird pitch. That one's a strange book to try and talk to people about because it is so eclectic. Yeah. It is such a bizarre reflection. Like I don't even think there's a Harker story in that book. There, I don't remember one. There is a Bubba. Yeah, there's a Bubba story, um, but most of the stories don't really connect to anything else that I do. But I feel like if you read that, you get a sense of how I write and yeah. what stories I'm interested in telling. So it does serve as an entry point, even if it's not the absolute best on-ramp into my stories. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so... Uh, I have a background in music, and uh, I believe you have a background in theater production. Yes, I was it, uh, I was a professional lighting designer for God, I don't know, twenty five years, yeah, something like that. I uh, I was a an audio tech stagehand for a while. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> hey, can you make can you make the kick drum louder? Oh, uh, I that I would have relished having being on the level that actually controls the board. I was the the guy running the cables. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. Yeah. I remember a friend of mine used to always keep an open channel on his mixer that he would keep at about 30%. And whenever that drunk guy at the show would walk up, Hey man, I can't hear the kick drum. He would just reach over to this channel that did absolutely <laughs> nothing. 
yeah. and push it up a little. How's that, man? Oh, that's great, dude. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds, yeah, that's, I can got 1 where, million percent see that. Got to where I did the same thing on the light board <laughs> because it was easier to just have an empty fader yeah. that I could push up a little and say, how's that? Oh, that's great, man. Then to try and explain to him that I'm the lighting guy. I don't know shit about your kick drum. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Well, yeah. so uh, the reason I, I bring that up is uh, I'm a big, uh, big music guy. I always am listening to music when I'm writing. And I, I always like to find out what do authors listen to? Do they listen to music? Uh, you know, white noise, absolutely nothing. Uh, so where do you come down on that spectrum? Depends on how I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I have three cats now, so the house is never quiet. Right. But I like to listen to music, and I've found that certain types of music do help me get in the mindset. Um, Rob Zombie, if I'm writing a big fight scene, I like mm-hmm. a lot of more human than human and Dracula. Yeah. Nice. Um, so a little ministry, a little skinny puppy. I'll go old mm-hmm. 90s industrial stuff, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, but most of the time it's, um, folk bluegrass or Americana country. Yeah. J- Jason Isbell, Chris Stapleton, uh, Holly Williams, that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's, that's most, when I'm writing my, my Marsh stuff, it's a lot of Sturgill Simpson, Lost on yeah. Street Band, uh, Tyler Childers, that, yeah. that kind of stuff. So love me some Sturgill Simpson. Yes, 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 yes. I, I'm I'm actually not much of a country guy. I was, you know, grew up a metalhead in the deep south. Country was the antithesis of of, of, of everything. But I got older and basically discovered Sturgill's <laughs> and I was like, oh, right. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot of country that's pretty metal now. Yeah. Well, you know, country uh, country is far and away the most popular genre of music. And you can't have that much popularity without having, you know, sub genres develop. So yeah. there's definitely, definitely some country out there that uh, I have, I have grown to love. Absolutely. I really liked that, um, that crossover single that Lil Nas X did with, um, oh crap. What's the achy break your heart? Guy? Oh, uh, Billy, Billy, Ray uh, Billy Ray Cyrus. Yeah. Yeah. That was, yeah. That, that, Little Nas X is so creative. Yeah. Um, they're his they're videos amazing. are just so good. Yeah. I mean, my God. <laughs> so uh we now get to move into the slightly awkward part of the of the podcast because typically every every episode of the season to date, at this point, I would say, well, you know, my author hero is a man named John Hartness. Um <laughs> so uh and he always says that as as authors, uh, you know, we cannot write as fast as people can read. So we should be always, you know, sharing the love, you know, supporting other authors. So I do in fact say those words. I, I've heard, <laughs> I have heard you say that several times and it's something that stuck with me. Uh, and so, uh, I, at this point, I like to ask who is your author hero and you can name multiple and oh, then who is an author you think we should be checking out that maybe we aren't? And again, name as many as you want. Author heroes. Well, let's go for some folks I'm just a big fan of because mm-hmm. a lot of these people, I don't know anything about their personal life and may and may hate them if I learn it. Um, 
because people are flawed. Yeah. Neil Gaiman, Mm -hmm. and I do know enough about his personal life to know that he's fine. Um, Gaiman's Gaiman's fantastic. I've been a fan of his since he was just that guy who writes comic books, not since he was Neil F. and Gaiman. Um, (laughs) Pat Conroy is probably my favorite writer of all time. Mm -hmm. Um, Lords of Discipline, Prince of Tides, just an amazing Southern writer. Uh, let's see. I also love me some Ray Feist. Yeah. Uh, the Magician, the Rift War books. My God. Uh, I love Tad Williams. Yeah. Those are people that I um, that I really try to work like. Yeah. I want to write things like what they do. I got to give props to Butcher, man. Um, for a long time, I was like, oh, I like the Dresden Files. This guy's pretty good. Then I read Codex Alara. Ooh, I love Codex Alara. And I was blown away because mm-hmm. the voice is so spectacularly different from his Dresden work that um, it really moved him up a notch in my estimation of his skill. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew there was talent there. But talent, talent can get you through a couple of books. Yeah. But then there's got to be skill. Yeah. No, I definitely agree there. Have you, uh, uh, going back to Raymond E. Feist, have you read his uh, new books, the ones that aren't Midkemia books? I've read the first one. I need to, I think the, maybe the third one just came out or something. I know that, I know the second one's out. I don't know about the third. I think uh, the third one either just dropped or the pre-order just dropped Mm -hmm. Um, because I follow him on Facebook. So I remember seeing something. Yeah. Um, As far as people folks should be reading mm -hmm. um, Grady Hendrix. Yeah. Grady Hendrix is such an amazing Southern voice for horror. Mm -hmm. I mean, that boy that boy's as Southern as white gravy on a biscuit. <laughs> yeah. Final girl support group is incredible. And the Southern book club's guide to v- vampire slaying or vampire hunting. Yeah. Is yeah. amazing. That's I, I loved, one. I loved horror store. Uh, that was the first one of his, I saw, but I actually didn't read it. Yeah. Um, but it's, the uh, physical it's presentation good. of that was fantastic oh yeah no i it was it's rare for me these days to buy i i only buy physical books at conventions pretty much anymore um but horror store was one i had to i had to get in physical yeah absolutely as far as things people should be reading um i'm gonna be completely selfish and pick from the falstaff catalog do it do it a debut author week had with her book come out last year's Jessica Nettles and her book is the children of Menlo park. It's a historical fantasy with a lot of steampunk elements and it's Mark Twain and Nikola Tesla team up with Kate Warren, who was another actual historical figure. She was the first female Pinkerton Hmm. who foiled an early attempt on Abraham Lincoln's life. Nice. Well, they team up to fight Cthulhu. As you do. 
as you, know. you do. <laughs> so Children of Menlo Park is a fantastic book. And Jess and I worked together on it for several years to bring it to life. And I'm really proud of that book. Um, we're reissuing a series by James Tuck, his Deacon Chalk yeah. books. We're re-releasing the first three of those and the first three novellas. And then we are going to publish a new novella, a collection of the four novellas, and we're going to publish a fourth Deacon Chalk novel. And those covers are real good. Thank you. Yeah. I really like those covers. And um, because the original covers from Kensington were very hyper-realistic painted covers that look a lot like the old Mac Bolan adventure mm. covers dude shooting stuff <laughs> well i we're a small press i can't afford a fully painted cover no. uh, much less six of them at once which is what i commissioned for the three novellas and the three novels yeah but i can afford a strong stylistic image and my cover artist for that series is the same as my cover artist for Bubba and Harker. So she and I have done a ton of books together. Yeah. And she just did a fantastic job with them. Yeah. No, they, they definitely, uh, definitely stand out. Something else people should take a look at is um, a debut from Aaron S. Bales called in blood and duty bound. It's the beginning of a five book epic fantasy series that I can't wait to read the next one of. So I'm really looking forward to more of that series coming. <laughs> and then we'll probably, we'll wrap up with, um, let's see. You know, a lot of people who are listening to this probably like a little comedy. So let's go highbrow with our comedy <laughs> this time. It's a book called Burning Shakespeare by A.J. Mm, Hartley. Yeah. And it's a time travel fantasy about a guy who doesn't get tenure as an English professor. And he wants to then travel back in time to erase <laughs> Shakespeare from the literary canon. <laughs> and he enlists a demon to help him. Well, then the angels get involved and they have to hire their helpers. <laughs> so it's trying to save Shakespeare and experience the difference in our world without the bard. Yeah. Um, AJ is a Shakespeare professor at UNC Charlotte. He's probably one of the five or 10 foremost experts in Shakespearean performance in the world. So there's plenty of deep cuts in <laughs> Shakespearean lore, but you yeah. don't have to, you don't have to know shit about Shakespeare to like it. <laughs> yeah. um, nice. it if, again, if you like, if you like Terry Pratchett, I would be all about burning Shakespeare. Yeah. And again, that's, that's another one that's got a good cover. I've seen the yeah. cover for that one a few times. I, I, I really enjoy it. Yeah. We put a Google, we put googly eyes on a Shakespeare head. You, you, I mean, you have to. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, before we get out of here, why don't yeah. you take take some time, tell people where can they find you, find your book, social media, website, that kind of that kind of stuff. It's real hard. 
everything is really complex. <laughs> I am at John Hartness on almost everything. Yeah. My, my Facebook author page is facebook.com slash John G Hartness. Mm-hmm. The one without the G is my personal page. And I'm probably not going to approve your friend request because I get a lot of them and I, and that's my personal space. That's where I, that's yeah. not where I do business. I have a Facebook group called John G Hartness books. You can hear me every two weeks on the authors and dragons podcast where I play dungeons and dragons really, really badly <laughs> with another, with a group of fantasy and science fiction authors. I'm at John Hartness on Twitter. I'm at John Hartness on Instagram. We are at Falstaff Books on pretty much everything. It's falstaffbooks.com. It's johnhartness.com. I tried to make it as easy as possible. Yeah. Yeah. No, and that's the benefit for uh, kind of starting uh, starting your career kind of early and getting all that stuff yeah. down. I was lucky. You know, I've been doing this long enough that I was able to lock in Tales by Bob everywhere <laughs> yeah so uh, th- there are some perks for laying your ground game early in your career yeah it was a lot easier to get your name.com in 2009 yeah than it is now <laughs> yeah for sure well uh john it's been an absolute pleasure uh could not think of a better way to end uh season one uh and so uh, just thank you so much for your time always as my as my brother Tommy says, it's always good to see good people. <laughs> so, yeah, it's good good talking to you, and I'll uh, look forward to seeing you in person next time. Yeah, I don't know. You're going to do Dragon this year? Oh, always. Always. All right. Never miss well, it. I'm easy to find. Yeah, we'll see you there. <laughs> All, right. All right, guys. Until uh, next time, y'all be good now. taking the time to check out another exciting episode of Southern Fried Fantasy. If you would, you know the drill. Give us a like, subscribe, follow, all that jazz. We'll appreciate you. Until next time, y'all. is part of the Tales by Bob network. To see all our great shows, go to talesbybob.com.